Stay tuned for the Lin Show. This is the second part of my three-part interview with the amazing Roger Stephens. At the end of the last segment, I was asking Roger if he'd been drafted. This segment begins with his describing how he was tricked into signing up for an extra year with the promise that he would not be in combat, but would be used as an actor by being sent to Infos. Of course, that was not what happened. Listen to his extraordinary experiences in the war, including being trained in PSYOPs and being in the center of the Tet Offensive and being responsible for the delivery of tons and tons of food and clothing to displaced refugees. Then listen to the impact that his war experience had on his beliefs, on what he chose to do with his life afterwards, and all the work that resulted from it. This segment ends with my asking Roger how his relationship with the legendary Bob Marley occurred. You will rarely get an opportunity to listen to such an extraordinary man describing such an extraordinary life. Hang on, here come the show. Oh, 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 
to The Lynn Show. The Lynn Show is about being the person you really are, not the person other people are, not the person you think you have to be, not the person someone told you you had to be or even told you you were, not even the person that you currently think you are, but the person you really are. It is my experience as a psychotherapist that lets me know that many, many, many people are demonstrating a version of themselves which doesn't include all of who they are because something in their childhood discouraged them from being all that they really are. In my shows, I interview people who make their living or their life with an art because when you listen to them, you can hear what it sounds like to be who you really are. My interview with Roger is not only an example of a man who is being all he is capable of being, it demonstrates what we human beings are actually capable of. As I said in the run-up, this segment begins with Roger's experience in the Vietnam War. Roger is mesmerizing to listen to. So here now is my second segment with Roger Stevens. I was artist in residence at a woman's college, Catholic woman's college in St. Louis. I was playing 12 different Shakespearean characters to the 12 girls who were seniors in the drama program. And uh, on opening night, I got a telegram. You know, if you made 26, they wouldn't draft you. Uh, and I was just about to turn 25 and I got drafted. George, I went to the local recruiters like an idiot and they convinced me to sign up for an extra year because I was an actor and they could put me in radio and TV. Send me to DINFOS, the Defense Information School. Where they an additional year in the service? Yeah. Oi. Oi. But I didn't want to go to Vietnam and they right. said we have no stations in Vietnam. Turned out they were building nine. So I went into the Army after basic training. Instead of DINFOS, they sent me to a little tiny fort, Benjamin Harrison in Indianapolis, to be a stenographer. <laughs> and I said, this is not what I signed an extra year of my life for. And they said, well, well tough for ours. But it happened to be the same tiny fort where DINFOS was. <laughs> and a sympathetic sergeant got me transferred within a week into the radio TV school. I was the honor graduate. I could run a radio station, I could run a TV station, I could run the film chain, I could be the cameraman, I could produce and write and direct. They trained us the best school I've ever been to in my <laughs> life because at the end of each week they gave you tests and if you didn't pass the tests, you went into combat. <gasps> so there was a great incentive. Oh my God! We started with 72 people, ended up with 48. My first orders, in fact, were to go to Ethiopia, ironically, in, in light of my later life, Selassie and everything. Um, so I had orders for Asmara Eritrea, which was an open revolt against Ethiopia. And I had my shots and my visa and everything. And the last week of class, they canceled everyone's orders and shipped us off en masse to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, to the Green Berets JFK Special Warfare Center for three weeks of intensive indoctrination. You cannot fail in PSYOPs, Psychological Operations, and they trained us with Nazi films. With, you're kidding! The four, first class was the four-hour uncut version of Triumph of the Will by Lenny Reifenstahl. 
the last class they repeated it all four hours. They the wanted, Nuremberg rally film. It's an indoctrination. This is the best propaganda ever made. Go to Vietnam now, carry 80 pounds of loudspeaker backpacks into combat frontline operations, broadcasting pre-recorded cassette machine surrender messages. I have you surrounded. We, we have you surrounded. <laughs> Are you making that up? Oh, no. And I got to Saigon fully expecting to be sent into combat, and they looked, looked at my typing speed and my my IQ, and they said, the colonel is, typist is going home next week. You can either go out with the 9th Division into combat, or you can stay across the street in the air-conditioned hotel with hot and cold running water and be the colonel's typist. <laughs> this was early November 67. I decided. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. And three months later, the Tet Offensive broke out. Three weeks later, there's the Tet Offensive. You'd have been right in the middle of it. I was right in the middle of it. Um, at, at one point, uh, I'm on guard duty at about 2 in the morning, and the Armed Forces radio is on, and I, being a documentarian, have my tape recorder going, and they're reporting on the battle that's going on right around us. And uh, I still have those tapes. Well, hold on a second. This is an interesting thing, which you hadn't said anything about before. The documentarian thing and the audio taping. When did you start doing that? And what was the motivation for that? Do you remember? I had a keen sense of history because my mother was fascinated by it. And my grandfather was a graduate of the University of Dublin at the turn of the last century and was a historian. And... You know, growing up, I remember the MacArthur parade when Truman fired him and they had a ticker tape parade for him in New York. I remember the Army McCarthy hearings, listening to them when I was a kid. And, uh, you know, just made to understand the things that were happening around me that were pieces that were going to be remembered when I grew up. So I, I would keep newspapers uh, of, of important things. Uh, I was fascinated by flying saucers, and I, anything about saucers I would cut out of the paper and magazines immediately. And I still have all of that stuff. I have the Twin Earths comic strip. I cut it out of the newspaper every single day. And I've got mounds of them in a drawer in the back room. So are you saying you started this collecting thing? Oh, by the time I was six, I was a collector. You know, stamps, first of all. Yeah, right. Yeah, so I've had a collector's instinct my entire life. Okay, so you have the you have the, t the tape recorder, and you're in the middle of the Tet Offensive, and... Yeah, and I'm taping the Armed Forces radio broadcasts uh, on the battle that I'm looking out on from my guard post. So, right after the Tet Offensive started, there were huge sewer pipes on the street in front of us, at my barracks, uh, that hadn't been laid yet. And there were 52 families living in the sewer pipes. Oh, my God. People whose homes had been burned to the ground. And every morning, it seems, you'd go out on the street and there'd be another dead body lying on the street. And so um, I had read poetry probably in about 200 schools before I went to Nam. And I had contacts in each of these places, and I wrote to a lot of them. And there was a town in Wisconsin called Racine, where I had spoken two or three times in all the schools, and all the school kids knew me. And I sent a letter to the editor of the Racine Journal Times describing the situation and saying, if you send me food and clothing, I will personally distribute it to the people who need it most and make sure it doesn't end up on the black market. But these people need help. 
and they published my letter along with an editorial urging support, and the town adopted me. <laughs> and over the next two years, they sent me over 100 tons of food and clothing. Oh, my God. Three weeks after my letter appeared, two five-ton trucks pulled into the compound with these huge nine-foot-tall steel connexes, they call them, with my mail. And all these little boxes personally addressed to me, pouring out of them. And I went in, I'm the colonel's typist. I went into his office. I said, Colonel, there's something outside you've got to see, sir. I'm very busy, Private. I said, no, Colonel, you really have to see this. All right, what is it? And he goes out and he says, what the hell's that? I said, well, I, I, I think it's refugee supplies I asked my friends to send me, but I'm going to have to send them all back. Come out of my office, Stevens. What the hell do you mean? I said, well, I promised my friends I would personally distribute these things, and uh, I'm so busy typing your, your letters, I, I have no time. He promoted me on the spot to Spec 4, which was like a corporal, and gave me my own Quonset hut and put me in charge of his oh civic action section. I was his entire civic action section. And I started writing to other people, and uh, the things just came in in floods, and we worked with refugees from the DMZ to the Delta. I was in Hue right after the communists were driven out in the Central Highlands with the mountain yards. And yeah, I, I, and I never fired a shot in 26 months in Vietnam, no. thank God, and tried to do a lot of the Good. damage I saw around me. Wow. Yeah. So, so you did that for three years, essentially? Well, no, I got an early out because after my year was up, I kept extending in-country, which gave me a five-month drop. So I was, altogether, I was in the Army 31 months, but after my training, all of it was spent in Saigon. Okay, so you come home from this. With a bronze star. Oh. <laughs> Whatever that means. Mazel tov. Yeah. So you come home from this. You've had an extraordinary experience. Who do you think you are? I mean, what do you think you're going to well, do? Well, I'm, I'm the totally different Roger from the Roger who went over there. Because That's what the part, I'm thinking. The part of my life we haven't talked about is political. And because I was raised by Catholics uh, through my junior year in college, 15 years of Catholic education, nuns in grade school, high school and college, Irish Christian brothers, brutal people except for the one man who was my public speaking coach and gave me a career for the rest of my life, Brother Bradley. And I don't confuse the organization with its individual members as much as I detest the organization of the Catholic Church. I, I was a Goldwater conservative. I wept the night he lost the election. On the eve of the election, I went to Madison Square Garden and yelled myself hoarse. I couldn't go to work the next day. I drove around that night with tears in my eyes. I thought America had sold its birthright. I was reading National Review. I thought William Buckley was the coolest guy who ever lived. I worked on his mayoral campaign. Oh, my God. And then I went to Nam. And I'd say within three weeks of my arrival, I realized it was all one huge goddamn lie. It was all bullshit. I mean, everybody was making money. Fisher Stereo made $3 million in 1968 in Vietnam selling stereos to combat troops. They had girls in miniskirts selling Ferraris in the, in the PXs with life insurance attached to them. Oh, if you die, your, your wife will oh inherit your God. car. Sign here, troop. Uh, and, and gambling machines in the lobbies of the barracks. 
Oh my God! Uh, no, I mean it's, everything I learned about it was uh, about how it was just an act of total corruption, and it was a ticket puncher for lifers because you only had to go for a year, and you could jump one or two grades. I mean, I made E six in twenty six months. <laughs> That's a staff sergeant, and that takes normally ten to twelve years in the army. My God! Yeah, so that, it was all bullshit. So it radicalized you. Totally, I came back and le lectured against the war all year long. Wrote a book about it. That never got published because no one wanted to read another word about Vietnam in 1970. But I lectured back and forth across country three times when I got out of the Army. And by May, I was no longer the pre-booked convocation speaker. I was the strike committee speaker because that was Kent State and the Jackson State murders. And that whole month of May, I'd go from school to school and sometimes the townspeople would come. and My 45-minute talk would end up like three or four hours. You know, I, I could relate to both sides, you know. I was you, but <laughs> I grew up. Yeah, so I, I was radicalized. And by the end of 1970, when I'd finished the book, I didn't want to be an American anymore. I, I was so ashamed of the country, and Kissinger's still in there with that crook Nixon. I wanted to go someplace where I could learn another language, French, a place that was warm, a place that had a culture I didn't know much about. So... I thought maybe I'll go to the south of France. And instead we, oh, I didn't even introduce Cynthia yet. Um, my first wife and I moved to Marrakesh for most of 1971. Cynthia Koppel was a fascinating woman I met on Easter Sunday, 69, in the middle of the Mekong River on the island of the Coconut Monk, an island of 6,000 people who had dropped out of the war from the North Vietnamese Army, South Vietnamese Army, Taoists, led by a, a four-and-a-half-foot-tall hunchback monk who hadn't lain down in 20 years on an island that was like a religious Disneyland where they prayed to Christ, Buddha, Mohammed, Lao Tse, Confucius, Sun Yat-sen, Victor Hugo, Winston Churchill, and anybody who came without a weapon was welcome, no questions asked. North bank of the river controlled by the Americans, south bank by the communists, They'd fire rockets and mortars over the island and never touch the island. Cynthia was a war correspondent, and she knew somebody in my unit, and he wanted to see the island. And I didn't want to go with this guy, because when I went to the island, I liked to smoke some Park Lane herb cigarettes <laughs> and hang out without my uniform. And he said, well, there's a blonde round eye who wants to do a story about it, and I'd bring her with me. And I said, well, all right, you can come. And uh, it's a long story, but we fell in love, and she, she moved in with me to an apartment on the main street of Saigon. And we got married when we got back to the States. She left early. She left in October of 69 and came back and booked a six-month tour for me. I gave her all these contacts of people that I knew before the Army, and, she came, and we had a different city every week. And... She set it all up. So as I say, when, I, by, when May 1st came around, I was booked for one thing, and I became another with the strikes because all the colleges, and high, a lot of the high schools went on strike yeah. against the murder of the, the students. So that was a pivotal time for me. And then um, lived in Marrakesh for a year, decided I was an American. <laughs> was brought to London by an old classmate of mine from the semester I had at Carnegie Tech who became um, Sir Lawrence Olivier's uh, personal assistant at the National Theatre. And he said, uh, I could set you up to uh, 
do some performances of your one-man show if you wanted and uh, ended up living in a 400-year-old Elizabethan cottage in Surrey and doing the show under the aegis of the National Theater. We were there for three months at the end of 71. Then we came back to the States. And uh, I lived in Berkeley from 72 to 75. Cynthia and I broke up in 73. And Tim Page moved in with me, a photographer of the first water, a legendary character uh, who was wounded four times while working for Time Life. And the last time he had the right third of his brain blown out the back of his head. And he spent about a year and a half recovering. And he started to work in the early days of Rolling Stone, and Jan Winter put him together with Hunter Thompson. <laughs> and they did two gigs together, and after the second gig, Hunter went to Jan Winter and said, I can't work with this guy Paige, he's too crazy. <laughs> Which Tim wore as a badge of honor. And he had a, a little button on his cap that said, Drain Bamaged. <laughs> he's still alive. Wow. And uh, he's like a UN uh, ambassador, and he's a Red Cross passport, and he's in and out of Cabo and Phnom Penh all the time. Lives in Australia, became an Australian citizen. He's done a dozen books, which are all brilliant. He's won every major journalism prize on down, and um, still one of my dearest friends. But to live with Tim Page for two years in Berkeley in the early 70s, oh the, the glory days of Quaaludes and cheap pot and LSD. Um, in fact, LSD brought me to my wife. Um, Tim was turning 31 in May of 75, and we knew a midwife in Mendocino who lived out in the woods near a pygmy forest. And it was a country midwife, and she invited us up to celebrate Tim's birthday with a massive acid trip of about a dozen people. And uh, we all dropped. And uh, it turned out uh, that her roommate was a woman named Mary Higgins, who had just quit her job after four and a half years up there as a psychiatric social worker. And it was love at first sight. So Mary and I met on an acid trip in a pygmy forest under a total eclipse of the moon in Mendocino. And we've been together since that day. And we have two kids now and uh, a wonderful marriage. And she's just... I'm more in love with her now than I uh, than ever before. It was just one of those things where we looked at each other and went, ah, there you are. Yes, yeah. right. Yeah. It's karmic. It is karmic. Mm -hmm. She was married once before. I had just put my whole life in storage. I was up there with an, a woman from Wisconsin. I'd flown out for the weekend, and I was about to leave a couple of days later for a trip cross-country uh, with an English girl. <laughs> And I was working that whole year on and off with uh, a veteran who wanted me to help him write his autobiography. And he was a crazy man, as many of them are. And I was back and forth across the country. We'd have a week in the Chelsea Hotel in New York and a week in the Chateau Marmont down here. And he'd come up to the country and we'd write all day and night. And it was Ron Kovic and oh it was God. born on the 4th of July. My God. Yeah. And uh, so that, that colored 1975 pretty strongly for us. It was such an intense period of creativity. So, 75? Yeah. You were here? No. I moved here in October of 75. 
And I, you may recall, I, I almost immediately got to fulfill the great American dream when I moved here. I got on that Monty Hall TV quiz show, <laughs> Free for the Money. And I won $11,300, a new Buick, and $25 worth of dentine gum. And <laughs> you remember the place we lived in on Hyperion with the 42 stairs going up. Um, I looked out a couple of months after the uh, quiz show, and I, here comes the, our mailman, an old old black guy from Mississippi. I loved him. And he's coming up the stairs with this big carton of dentine gum in his hand. And he knocks on the door and he says, Mr. Staffens? I said, yes. And he looks at the box and he looks at me and he says, you show must like this shit. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, you know, it sat in the living room for years. I'm afraid of anybody, but nobody took it. No, no, I don't chew gum. I don't want that crumb stuff. Yeah. So that was a good way to come into L.A. because at least I had a few dollars. I had 50 bucks to my name when we moved into that apartment. Wow. 50 bucks. And um, that's another long story. But um, well, okay, that, that so kept us going through the following summer. So when does Bob Marley start? Mm. The Lynn Show is about saying that if an experience in your childhood discouraged you from being all that you can be. It may not be too late for you to recover some of what you might have had to hide or deny. And it is my hope that when you listen to Roger, listening to what it is actually possible for a human being to think, to want, to do, to accomplish, that you are encouraged to look back on your life and ask yourself if you were discouraged and what you were discouraged from, and if you could try and get it back. So, I can only imagine that if you heard either the first or the second segment, you are eager to hear about Roger's experience with Bob Marley. As always, I hope you got something from this show you can use something that will bring you back because I will be back. And as always, I sure hope you will be too. You see, I'm getting older. My hair is turning gray. Oh, you see my face and figure. I've both seen better days. Well, I won't be retiring. I won't slip out of sight. No, I will not go gentle into that good night. I won't go with a whimper. I am going with a bang. Life's a song I keep on singing, not a tune that I once sang. I just keep returning like some goddamn Someone else get on Well, I 
I won't be relegated or leave without a fight. No, I will not go gentle into that good night. Got some tang, so you won't hear me simper. I may have got to. 